Hello and welcome to episode number 330 of the Armin Show podcast, where we have science, creatives, learning more, connecting with intelligent individuals, those who have something to say, expression, authors, a variety of content, and the show continues. On this one here, we have a delightful guest. Who are we with? Well, it's the author of the book, Influence is Your Superpower, The Science of Winning Hearts, Sparking Change, and Making Good Things Happen of Yale. We have Professor Zoe Chance. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Armin. I'm really happy to talk with you. I'm glad to have you on the show. Zoe, it's from A to Z. I just realized Armin to Zoe, that's A to Z. We're covering all (laughs) All of our faces. Yes. (laughs) Everything is being handled there. This is a wonderful thing. Now, before we get into the content, I have to point out, I can just uh, pick up on things immediately. Zoe's very uh, likable individual, pleasant, and is curious. So these are some features I noticed, which is a wonderful thing. When I see good qualities, I have to point them out. Who's going to point them out? This guy. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Armin. Now, a variety of topics I'd like to get into, but first, how would you describe who you are and how you got to where you are today in January of 2022? Well, there's the official version that's sort of like linear A to B, and then there's the reality for most of us, which is like all over the place. Um, and I'll just give a couple of points cool. to not to not take up our whole conversation with the nonlinear one um, and still have some truth in it. Mm-hmm. I always wanted to be a writer, and since fifth grade, I wanted to be a professor, and I have no idea why. But my best friend Elizabeth and I had this alter ego named Zosabeth Ost, Professor Zosabeth Ostog. We would write stories and for some reason wear mustaches when we were Zosabeth Ostog. And our fifth grade teacher gave us, a, at the end of the year, a typed up book with all of the stories that we had written as our alter ego professor. And I realized recently that it's now you know, over 30 years later, and I'm finally, finally, finally only now publishing my second book after <laughs> that initial first stage. So this really is something that I've wanted to do. Um, And I would say I am a pathological teacher. I come from a family of pathological teachers, and we just can't help teaching stuff. My daughter is a pathological teacher as well. And she will teach you everything she knows, no matter whether you want to learn any of it or not. Like if she's taking piano lessons, Armin, if you're in the house, you're taking piano lessons. (laughs) This is this is how we roll. So I think we've had uh, five generations of teachers in my family. So a lot of this comes from early on. But the, the book comes out of a course that I've been teaching at Yale for the past 10 years, which is called Mastering Influence and Persuasion. It's the most popular course at the business school. I love teaching this class. I put my heart and soul into it. And I'm sure that's why students, many of them enjoy taking the class, although they call it sometimes doing uncomfortable things to make you a better person. So it's not, it's not just pure fun. But this class is something I created after my own experience as an MBA student, where I loved my MBA experience at USC. It was great. I learned a lot. But then on the job, nothing I had studied in school was practical. Nothing, nothing that I had learned helped me at all. And so when I wanted to create a course myself, I tried to make it as practical and helpful as possible. And when I was working as a brand manager on Barbie and Mattel, and I'm managing this $200 million segment of the biggest girls brand in the world, 
customer marketing, but I spent half my time trying to influence and persuade the people around me, my colleagues and senior managers to do the things that were obvious that we should do by my smart analysis. Mm -hmm. And this was how I got academically and intellectually very interested in the study of influence. That's actually packed. What a, what a path right there. I have to point out by like really cool in the background, the colors of the books, the white and black and blue. <laughs> I'm such a nerd, but it makes me happy. And, and about this, by the way, um, can you see this window over yeah. on this side? Uh-huh. So my job right now, job title is senior lecturer. And I stepped off the tenure track a couple of years ago from being on the ladder as an assistant professor. And I had a beautiful office with a view from the fifth floor all across our city, gorgeous. And when you step off the tenure track and, and then went also part-time, you get moved into a, a smaller office with no windows. And this is an octave down from there. It's the even smaller office. And now that I have two windows and they open to the hallways so people can see me where I'm working. And my office is like the size of a king size bed, but I've made it beautiful and I love it. Like my bookshelf that you can see and you can't see I have art all over it and it and a carpet and flowers like here like fresh flowers we like growing. flowers mm-hmm. yeah um and i work really well here that's kind of cool you're you're right in the middle of it they can see from both sides yes they can see what like they can see you like people walking down the hallway will be able to see your face yes hello all my fellow people <laughs> keep up the good work that's <laughs> that's kind of cool it's like so then that's like placing you within the context of you're you're doing usually people are hidden in the background it's nice to actually be in the actually there's a tiktok guy who's really popular right now he just does hours of people watching him on live studying where like 1800 people are watching him studying so they can join him on the feeling oh my god people are so weird (laughs) right and then but some of them they might be like uh they'd see it and then they'd they join in or i don't know it got popular recently but there's something about seeing it in person that's kind of cool now, you wrote this book after many, many years. We're talking at the extended period that you described. Why did you get into writing this book? Why not leave it unwritten? What is the thing that pushed you to write it? Because I always think of a book as a big deal because to get to the point where one is published, there's so many steps involved. So how? Yeah. It, yes. And I hope that you have other authors coming on your show and talking about how for many of us in many of us that you're talking to, we really didn't write the book on our own. It was such a group project. And for me, my whole life is a group project because I just don't like doing things on my own. Mm-hmm. But also because of what you're saying, a book is so freaking hard and daunting and takes forever and so much work and so much love and so many hours. So on this book project, it did take me five years and still, I had a writing partner who for the last year and a half worked with me full-time all day, every day. I had an outside editor who was on calls with us for that last year, every single day working with us, amazing editor at Random House, two phenomenal agents who were super hands-on. And I had three research assistants who were helping me with the research part. So this, I was very lucky to be able to hire many of these people to work with me because I was very fortunate in getting an advance from Random House that would let me do that. If I hadn't, then what I would be doing is just finding 
friend, co-author, collaborators to work on this with me. And while I was writing, I had very few days that I was just completely by myself. And I had writing dates with maybe 15 different people on a regular basis that we would meet up in person until the pandemic happened. And then we would meet up online, but it was actually a lot of fun doing it in this way. The power of teamwork along the way. It's a collaborative effort. And then Yeah. But I didn't answer your question about why not leave it unwritten. And mm-hmm. that's such a cool question and a cool way to ask it. Counterfactual. Yeah. But, and, and just the, the whole, like, there's this book that exists that's unwritten, but it still exists. The, the class that I've been teaching at Yale, I love it. And I can only teach because of the way that it is 150 people a year. So I have like last year, I think 600 people applied. I only get to teach 150 of them. And you had to have applied to Yale, gotten into Yale, paid for Yale to be there in this class that I've put my soul into. And I wanted to democratize these teachings that many of the people who've gone through the class have told me are life-changing. And then through the course of writing the book, I learned so much more science. And so the book goes far deeper into the science than I even get to in class. So it's not just, here's the class written down. It's actually, um, it's its own, its own super nerdy, lovely little thing. That's a cool concept. Now, here's the thing. Uh, Were there any authors that prior to you writing the book made little comments to like, you should put one out there, or this is something that, was there anybody that leaned you toward it before you did it that gave you that like activation energy jump? Um, Actually, so when you're a teacher, people do tell you like, oh, you should write a book, right? So the, but one of the people who was super helpful for me said the opposite at the beginning of my book process. Um, So do you know who Ryan Holiday is? Yes, yes. Okay. Illness is the key. Yes, yeah. So he's a great writer, super prolific, successful. And I got to have a consultation call with him. And at the time I was working on the first iteration of this book project and it was called Bad Influence. And it was looking at all of these different archetypes of scare quote, bad guys, like uh, cult leaders, used car salesmen, con artists, pickup artists, apologies to pickup artists who are listening to this right now. And and looking at, okay, what is it that these people are doing that makes them influential? And then how could we use that in our own lives in a good way? And Ryan Holiday was like, listen, your idea sucks. It's absolutely terrible <laughs> because people don't want to read about things that are bad. And from talking to you, Zoe, that's the opposite of who you are and what you do. And you're expecting people to make this 180 shift to figure out, oh yeah, we're going through the bad to get to the good. And it's just not going to work. And it's crazy. So stop. And I did. I stopped. And then I started over, turned around completely, new collaborators. And I'm really grateful to him because Ryan was right. I like you describe that shift. I've done that in elements where like, if you put something on the internet, if it's negative, the negative gets doubled. And then it's like a losing battle. They're not going to do that shift up to the good, like using it as inspiration. So instead, you have to close that out. So you've experienced that. It's same exact, same exact concept. You have to. When you're, whenever you're doing things of a certain regard, you run into the exact same scenarios as others did on that path. You have to. There's no way around it. it. Has to show up. Now, there's a variety of similar to this. 
topics in the book that also related to things I had to manage through. So we may have some similarities in that regard. I would love to hear about that stuff mm -hmm. when it pops into your head or comes up. One of them is uh, you had mentioned in the book, no's saying no's and um, doing that as a default. I've actually said some of the things you came to is things I also came to as well at a certain point saying no as a default. I know I had to do that. Can you explain why you had to come to saying no as a default and how that changed your productivity? And yeah. And then can we hear from you as well? Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Deal. That is so, nice. <laughs> so I think it was 2018 and things were just going really well. And I think like at least my view has been probably all of us who start having things go really well, especially if we're enthusiastic people. I love the work that I do. I really like people. I get excited about new projects. And there were so many things I wanted to say yes to that I was just completely, completely tapped out, burnt out, exhausted, wrung dry. And the, the rule of thumb that I had been using to decide whether or not to say yes to something was sort of like Marie Kondo's, does it bring you joy? So if somebody would give me an invitation, I would just ask myself, does it bring me joy? And if it does, then I say yes. And that sounds great, except I have way too much joy to say yes to all of those things. And I was getting way too many invitations and requests and all that. So I did a month of no, which was a November month. And I just started saying no to everything. And everyone, even people that I love, even stuff I wanted to do. And it was so incredibly empowering and fun. And the biggest lesson from that wasn't just the time that I got back, which definitely helped me multiply my productivity. But it was realizing that the people on the other side were fine and they still liked me. It was no problem. I just wasn't a jerk when I said no. I wasn't like, no, I hate you and your butt face, right? I would say, you know, like, oh, no, thanks. Yeah, it's not really for me. Thank you for asking. Uh, or just even enthusiastic, warm nose, like, oh my God, I would rather die. That sounds like the most horrible thing in the world, but I wish you good luck with it. So tell me about your no journey. It is of a similar regard, but mine has a little bit more like mm, to it because I would do that. And then uh, I would want to say yes to things. It's like a giving nature of sorts. And then in the rare instances that I did say no, or even if I had too many things come up and I had to say no, I was like, wait a minute, that did work out. Or actually it wasn't a big deal on their end. Or wait a minute. Then you started looking at it like, wait a minute, I'm just handing out like free gold coins out here. And people are like, you okay, are. I'll take a gold coin. So yeah. uh, then I was like, are other, no, most people are not just handing out free gold coins. <laughs> oh, I'm looked at as like a free gold coin ATM kind of thing. So then I uh, <laughs> pulled back and then I realized some people, they would like me more or even understand me more when I said no. Because when I was saying yes, it was like weird. Like, I don't do that. Why is this person so giving? It would throw them off and make them feel self-conscious. But then if I said like, no, or like, I need to do something for me, they completely understood. Like, oh, I would do that too. I'm going to. So now I was relating better, which was, I did not expect any of that. Wow. I've never heard that before. That's very interesting. I, I kind of, I break it into like giving and uh, self-oriented elements and giver and giver works great. Let's say we are both givers, right? Right, right. It, more and great. Uh, self-oriented and self-oriented, great, because I like this thing. Okay, I like this thing. They're fine and they get each other, but they're not really giving to each other.
but giver and uh, self-oriented it's just a handoff (laughs) you're just continuing handing off yeah i'm gonna have in my head now the picture of the atm giving out gold coins (laughs) here's some gold (laughs) like who's gonna say no i don't want a gold coin but they're not gonna tell you Maybe it's not beneficial to you to stop handing out gold coins so freely to me who is just taking it. That never comes up. And I think and I think what you mean by gold coins is things that are so valuable to you, but but it's much less valuable to the other person. Like like you're a giver, clearly, and me too. And there's so many times that we are thrilled to help somebody out. And you know, like, hey, take all the gold coins, like take a pile, it's yours, awesome, right? Here's here we are at the end of the rainbow, but it's people like you were saying who not only don't reciprocate to us, but they're not reciprocating and paying it forward to anybody else. Like you and I don't need to get paid back every time we do a favor, but speaking only for myself, I do need that person to pay it forward to somebody else. Right. Usually these individuals, they don't even pay it back to themselves. I found out later on. So it's what, like, what uh, does that mean? Like, they're in some sort of like uh, internal debt continuously. And so then the gold coins, okay, I'll grab that gladly because I can't even fulfill. I don't even have my old, own gold coins replenishing in a way. Because they're not taking care of themselves. You mean? Right. Or something's so missing. Depleted, burnt out and all that. Yeah. So anytime I felt a not good feeling from somebody or a taking thing. Now I th- there's another layer I've added onto it now that like, well, I only had to deal with it for four minutes. They're dealing with that 24 hours a day. So my end is, Way minimal compared to that uh, feeling that they're having all day long. Yeah. Can I ask you about the no situation? Yes. Did you find when you started saying no more often that you got more comfortable with other people saying no to you? No, I still don't like it, but. I don't, I don't mean comfortable like you love it. Right, right, right. Easier than before. Yeah. Well, I never. Yeah. The funny thing is, as a giver, I never even thought about their no's. I just thought I'm going to bring my yeses and make the world great but yeah it, it did help me understand them a bit more and i had to adjust my uh, end boundaries if you will and such as mentioned in content but i uh i, I can't i'll never fully connect with that end because i'm just you know, i've got gold coins to give but yeah do you, do you ask often for things from others a lot of requests yeah no, that would be a, that's it. That category would be very valuable. Mm-hmm. That's a true point. This is a very good point. People, Zoe makes great points. Can't help it. it just <laughs> does. Not everybody does. I have to point these things out when they're happening because there's a consideration there. Consideration at a high high level there. That's kind Thank of good you. stuff. Yeah, givers have to be careful. I just think about it like this. If you have a nice thing, or like yesterday, I saw some a huge residence that somebody built and they put 20, 30 years of architectural work and all that. And it, it's a nice place. Everybody would want to go there, but there's a reason it's way up in the hill and maybe behind the gate or something because you got to protect nice things in some form, especially if it's your internal mm. nature or energy. Because if we lose that and we're givers and we have so much to give, that cuts off a huge chunk to the public versus if someone's not giving much, we're not, we're not cutting off so much, let's say. Yeah. Yeah. And, and if, if we're also doing asking and a lot of receiving, then we get to replenish, right. And do more of the giving that we want to do. Right. Are you, are you, you're probably familiar with um, Adam Grant's work on disagreeable givers. I don't know. I love love this frame. Yeah. So, you know, his, his give and take work. And um, 
disagreeable givers are the people who are the most likely to be successful. And these are people who have a giving mentality that you and I do, but the disagreeable part means that they're willing to say no and they're willing to draw boundaries and they're also taking care of themselves. So they're not just reactively, passively letting other people take all of the gold coins. They're, they're drawing a boundary and they're asking other people for gold coins as well. But the, but the giving mentality has a strong association with success under those conditions. Right. I see that. Then it's protected. Even more than the takers. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You can't get anywhere with just taking that. That doesn't go anywhere. I've never seen any sort of big results come from just what can I get kind of thing. Well, we had a president, but we don't need to go. There. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty good. Oh, another thing I think about is if someone has a mindset that they're giving and they're building something huge, then this is something that motivates me in that category is the idea that if you don't protect it in some form, this huge thing will be lost. And to the other individuals, they won't notice. Like it will be, if it didn't happen, they would have been like, oh, okay, average person. But you're not an average person. So it's, it's very important that if you have some large vision that you completely protect it in some way, or else the counterpoint is that it doesn't happen and nobody will ever say a thing. It's like a scary world. When you say protect it, what do you mean? Like uh, by saying no or uh, oh, okay, I'm going to do these things or no, I can't do yeah. that because I have to work on this or you can't join this because I have to do this. Without that, parts of your huge vision will crumble and then it's just your vision. You're the only one that when you sleep at night that had to feel that. Yeah. yeah. Armin, while we're talking big ideas, can I ask you a question about one of your principles? Yes. That, so, so I was sleuthing to see who is Armin Shermanian, who's, I'm going to talk to him in a few minutes, and people in the audience, he's so mysterious. He's the most mysterious person that I've had an interview with maybe ever. Um, but one of the things that I was <laughs> intrigued by was the principles that you've listed on your website. And the one that I especially wanted to understand is what does this mean to you? Act on the world and give no weight to the eternal external external sorry oh external did i, did I typo it maybe I don't. no 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 no. Totally oh, okay. right cool act on the world and give no weight to the external mm -hmm. that's a full me uh principle uh so before i mentioned that i got the principles from cameron porter major league soccer player who was on the show at one point he has a principles page on his website that i thought was gold he broke it into sections and i saw one other principles page so it's nice when somebody has these kinds of things put it out there uh, for those who do have that. It's very cool. Right? Immediately I saw it and I'm like, I have to make one of those. So uh, this one is a big deal to me because I don't like to be in the reaction world. Like a lot of individuals will go through the day. This happened to me and, oh, I can't complain. Or why would you? And then this thing occurred and this thing occurred. And that was the end of the day. So it was like you were just in the audience, which is okay. But I've always mentioned like you can replace people in the audience and the show continues. You can't replace the person on the stage or the show is not the same show. Mm -hmm. So I don't ever see myself as like an audience member. So it's always on me to act onto the world, bringing what I have. And then the external, all the whatever's on a phone or media or whatever it is, uh, not let it. If I, I can just consume all day, but John could just consume all day. Mm. There's no 
it's like uh, yeah as an audience member you have no like authority or presence anybody could have scrolled right there yeah that's an interesting way to think about it I've always loved the burning man core principle which is no spectators and we have that's the core principle for my class and I apply this as a core principle for my life as well and I think it's related to what you just shared I don't want to be a spectator in my life and someone coming into my life I don't want them to be a spectator either yeah how early on did you have this like uh, let's say we'll call it cre creation over consumption kind of mindset or on the stage versus audience when did that how early did that show up or was that just immediate uh, I've done a lot of theater actually in my life. And so I probably started thinking about it then. And I started theater because I was so shy and uninfluential as a child. And I, I was so nerdy, Armin, that my, my theory was that the reason people talked over me and didn't seem to hear me when I spoke was that my voice was the same timbre as the ambient sounds of the universe. So super nerd right there. And I started doing theater because when you're on stage, people have to listen to you. So I auditioned for a show that guaranteed everyone a speaking role. It was Aladdin and I was cobbler number three and I got to say shoes for sale. <laughs> that was my one line. But, but doing performance and connecting with people on stage and connecting vicariously with the audience and just thinking in a deeper way about acting and directing. And then I, I did a lot of work as a director too. It's probably how I started thinking about it. That's nice. You brought it back to the moment, right? Those little key moments that we remember, like we broke out from something that we were. That's funny. By the way, I couldn't hear anything you just said because it was not <laughs> able to be heard over the ambient sound of the universe. So if you could just, for the people, you know, that's pretty good. Huh, right. I was also of a quiet form early on. There's a lot of parallels here. I mean, there might be all parallels. I'm not sure, but there's a lot of parallels. Quiet, and then at some points, uh, it had to come out. But it was like limitation. Uh, others were not matching my way, and so then mine was diminished. And then later, boom! Now here I am. So, it's like okay, uh, but but you can't just be like yeah, and then boom! Now here I am. Boom. <laughs> right. What's I the boom? Say, right. Well, I will say. A big chunk of it was um, I went uh, very socializational. Uh, I, I started socializing a lot um, many years ago and became like the most, let's say, social person in Los Angeles. And then that was probably a big part of it. Because then when you meet 5, 10, 15,000 people one by one by one and have lots of interactions and experiences, then you're like, oh, okay, there are people I mesh with. There's more to the world. I don't need to be this way. I can figure out this. And people taught me things along the way. Are you are you an extrovert, would you say? You would look like it. Yeah, especially for like the 2010s, let's say. I am, yes, yes, I am an extrovert. But uh, I describe it as like whole. Like I could just look at a wall for two hours and be fine. Most extroverts could not. So... Uh, very... So you so you enjoyed becoming the most sociable person in LA and meeting ten or fifteen thousand people. Did you? I like the the moments with those who I could connect with. The rest, not such a big deal. So the extroversion, not such a pull factor, but connecting with others, uh, thoughtful or considerate or similar, that's a oh, big deal. Yeah.
I came to the point one day, I think something similar than the book, actually, I don't have it pinned down, but that I don't want to leave huge room of opportunity, not there, because I had a few times where experiences went so well from just a random meeting that I can't pass it up now. If there's a person in a store or something, I don't leave it alone because I've seen and the person in the store, the next thing you know, I traveled like far away or did this or we, we made a song together or from from like a brief moment. So it's like, can't leave that alone. Yeah, I, I, I've had conversations with students a number of times about introversion and extroversion, and a lot of introverts feel pressure to make the kind of transformation that you made. But it sounds like yours was genuine and natural and you enjoyed it. And a lot of people, like being in business school, you feel like you have to be partying and networking all the time because that's half of the thing that you're going into debt for. And um, I, I definitely don't believe that you need to be extroverted at all to be influential. But I definitely believe that like you're saying, Armin, you do need to find a way to connect with the people who are like-minded and on your wavelength whatever that is. And like we were talking about givers earlier and what I found, and I'm sure you found as well is as you get more successful, it turns out that there's like this secret society of very successful givers who are only supporting other givers. But once you get in like on the radar of these kinds of people, there are these phenomenally generous and successful people who are eager and happy to help you out. And they're not looking for reciprocity. They just want you to pay it forward to other people. And so uh, it's not that you need to network like an MBA student, but find some way to put yourself out there to share your work, shine your heart like a beacon so that other people can find you. I like that you brought that up. It doesn't have to be like some brute force attack over here. A little bit of reaching out or expressing yourself. Maybe someone posting their art online could connect with other yeah. similar painters or something of that nature. Yeah, that's true. These are good bigger picture points. That's classic. Now, here's one other item I wanted to... I noticed the amount of... Anyway, there's a lot of things that relate to things I've seen in existence that were in your book, which was good. You said, when someone lacks power, status, or agency, they tend to focus on their own experience, I, me, my, mine, which is kind of the self-oriented nature. Uh, can you speak on that? I have noticed that feature. Yeah. It's so, this was revealed to me by some really cool, super nerdy research by a psychologist at the University of Texas named James Pennebaker. And um, I saw him speak, and then I got his book called The Secret Life of Pronouns. That's how nerdy it is. But what happens is in all these analyses of written speech, verbal conversations, text messages, Penna Baker and now many other researchers have seen that people who feel like they have more power are less likely to use first person pronouns. And people who feel like they have less power use far more first person pronouns, I, me, mine, et cetera. So this is like between leaders and followers or rich people, poor people, um, like angry people and sad people. Angry people feel more powerful and sad people feel less powerful. So they use more first person pronouns. Um, and this and same for men and women. And people are upset about the women and disagree with me about the women part. And we can go into more detail on that if you want. But 
what happens is when we feel like we don't have power or status in an interaction, we need to care what the other person thinks of us. And a lot of our I, me, my kind of words come from that, where I might be saying, um, well, I, I was just wondering, or I kind of thought, I thought maybe um, I could be wrong, but using all these hedges that I call diminishers, which are how, what we do to try to have other people like us and to show that we're not a threat. That's showing it that we're not a threat is successful, but the having them like us part is not so successful because it's just kind of hard to listen to. It's all of this extra blah, 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 blah kinds of kinds of words. And that's the thing that women especially tend to do. It's not that men don't do it and we all do it to different degrees, but women do especially a lot of that, which is where we get um, I mean mine. So the charismatic, this is in my chapter on charisma, the charismatic way of speaking is by focusing your attention on the other person, people, or on the project at hand. And this is how you see and hear leaders speaking, talking about we and us or you, or just the project, just the thing that's happening. Because when you're in a leadership role, you don't care as much what other people think of you just because you don't have to. Right. Sometimes I see the rules and then I think maybe if I apply them, but also if I don't apply them, if I take the after effect of that rule and apply it, suddenly I'm getting the benefits for free. Like if I didn't know this concept, but then I was like, oh, okay, it looks like those who say things like we or uh, directed outward, they do better. You could just apply that as a, person and then maybe you would lean more towards success than if you were so eye focused let's say in speaking you can and and there are little things you can do to be less eye focused and more you or we focus like using the other person's name more often armin you know what i'm saying and i do as always like <laughs> and um like asking questions instead of using those diminishing languages like instead of saying uh, I was just kind of wondering just say hey what do you think of and that's much easier to listen to I've always taken heavy notice of those you mentioned there the diminishing language I would call them like let's say softening words I'm not sure what to call them but they are because I'm really logical and straightforward so those are always like why are they there it's, it's like who are we doing it for sometimes is what I was thinking when I was hearing them but they are very common and they just they're always around the part that is the main part. They're over yeah. here and here. <laughs> it's like, instead yeah. of saying, uh, I enjoy basketball, I'll be like, I feel like I enjoy basketball, comma. You know what I'm saying? Right. Like all these things. I'm like, you, but this was the, right. Oh, you're this right. You can just say the thing. Yeah. Even more direct than turning it into a question. Just say the thing that you're saying. <laughs> right. Yeah. They do sound a little more friendly in like public discourse, but maybe just for one line. But if it's continuous, it starts to, you wouldn't see it in a research paper. Too much. Oh, but for the love of God, we don't want to talk like research papers, right? Right, right, right. No. <laughs> and as the science occurred, we went towards, no, yeah. <laughs> According to Johnson and, right. That's a valid point. Now, one thing I really liked, immediately I knew I'd like the book and, share uh personality relatedness i always notice certain things there's always certain things that you realize okay this might be similarity here is your chapter is one one and a half two two and a half i've never seen it in a book in my life three three and a half and so on <laughs> how did you come up with that 
Uh, what did that represent? Uh, why? I, I never seen it anywhere else. Uh, thank you. I just did it mainly for fun for myself. And there were other reasons behind that. But ultimately, I just wanted to say, hey, this is for me. It's what I want to do. It's fun. It's my book. And in doing that, I want to be giving everyone else permission to not just write your own book, but do your own project, do it your own way. And if you want to have half chapters in a book, and that's not how books get written, like, who cares? You can publish a book with the biggest publishing company in the world and just tell your editor, I really want to have half chapters. And she's like, okay, Zoe, if that's what you need. And then the last chapter is chapter nine and three quarters. And that's an homage to Harry Potter. That's cool. Yeah, I basically took that from it. It's like a secret code for similar people. Secret code here. And then other people be like, <laughs> I don't understand this, but okay. Yeah. The, the science-y excuse for doing it, which is probably what I told my editor, is that we average our experiences. And so if we have experiences of just like the half chapters could have gotten, gotten swept up into the longer chapters because most of them relate to the chapter that's before. But the, it's just one specific idea that can also exist on its own. But if I have longer chapters instead, then the reader's experience turns into a slog versus if the reader's experience is punctuated by punchy, short, bite-sized half chapters, then it feels like a lighter book, which was important to me since I put a ton of science into this book. You don't want people to feel weighed down too much. It's lighter. It's like a dancer who's like quicker on their feet. That's cool. <laughs> These things are very important. These little details. Yeah, the little things are the big things, right? Mm -hmm. Now, this is one I have not gone to in direct form, but it is called Influence is a Superpower. Can you tell us some ways that influence can be a superpower for the average individual uh, from what they are today? Yeah, you already have it. Absolutely. It is your superpower for all of us. This is how we survive individually, and it's how we have survived and thrived as a human species. Almost every single thing that you're hoping to do in your life depends on influencing someone, even if it's just yourself. And we just, most of us don't spend a lot of time focusing on it. When you were a baby, you didn't have any means of survival except your ability to influence and persuade people to take care of you. As we have, as a species, multiplied and built entire civilizations and uh, conquered other species and civilizations. This is all accomplished through interpersonal influence. Almost every big movement or big historical shift starts with a small group of people who influence one another and then they influence their friends. It, we don't start with mass influence. We start everything with individual influence. Um, and would it be helpful maybe if I teach a very specific skill called the magic question? That would be great. We want this here at the Armin Show. We demand this here at the Armin Show. <laughs> so so this, this question is my favorite because it's the favorite of so many people that I teach. And um, it's, it's their favorite because it's so easy to use and it's so powerful. So here's a story that will help it sink in for people who are listening. Once upon a time, Gloria Steinem, she's an American feminist, goes to Zambia to a sex trafficking conference because this is the issue that she had become an expert in and she was speaking and she's writing about this. And after the sex trafficking conference, she goes to a village 
that's in the middle of nowhere near a big game preserve. And in that village, three young women had been sex trafficked and lost, never found again the previous year. She's sitting down on a tarp in the middle of the field with a group of women, and she asks them the magic question. The magic question is just, what would it take? Gloria Steinem asks, what would it take to not have that happen again? No more women leaving the village and getting sex trafficked. And the woman told her, an electric fence. An electric fence? They said, the corn, when it reaches a certain height, the elephants come and they eat it and they trample it and we have nothing to eat. We have nothing to sell at the market. We have no money to send our kids to school. And these young women and their families were starving and desperate. So Gloria Sinem says, okay, listen, if I raise the money, will you clear the field and will you build the fence? They say, yes. So she goes back home, raises the money, sends it to them. And the way she tells it, when she comes back a couple of years later, there is she says there's singing and dancing. I don't know, but there, she says there's a bumper crop of corn and nobody has been sex trafficked from that village since they got the fence. So here's why it's magic. You can use this anytime, anywhere with anyone, even repeatedly, even with people who have learned the magic question from you. They may be like, oh, Armin, it's the magic question again. Oh, okay, fine. But it works because it's respectful and you're acknowledging that the other person is the expert in their situation, their obstacles. Like Gloria Stein could have never in a million years thought of an electric fence as being the solution because she doesn't know it's a human wildlife conflict problem that's underlying the sex trafficking problem. And then when you ask them what it would take, you're shifting their mindset from resistance to persuasion to collaborative problem solving. We love collaborative problem solving. We love it when people approach us as experts. So if there's an answer, we'll give them the answer. So you get the answer. And so often it's way less than you would have expected. Like in this case, electric fence, few thousand dollars, super, super simple compared to whatever Gloria might've suggested as the problem of combating sex trafficking. And you, it's not that you always get a yes it's not a magic wand it's usually the start of a conversation so somebody might say no and if they do if they say there's nothing what it would take is there's nothing it's impossible that's not what you want to hear but it's still good to know right but it happens much less frequently than people expect that it will but then the last magic part is that and this is the sort of i guess it's the least obvious when that person has told you what it will take They've implicitly committed to supporting that outcome if you follow the roadmap. So when the fence goes up in this village, my interpretation is that it's not the fence that's protecting the women. It's the women who are protecting their neighbors, friends, kids, because they've said what it will take is the fence. And now that they have the fence, they're preventing the sex trafficking. Okay, so I hope that no one listening to this conversation has had to be or will be involved in sex trafficking problems or elephant problems, frankly, or electric fences, actually any of it, any of it. But you can use it in really simple situations. Like I had a TA who was showing up late for class and I was really pissed off. But instead of saying, hey, you suck, you can't do this anymore. Yeah, you bad person. Yeah. I said, hey, what, what would it take for you to come to class on time every day for the rest of the semester. And he says some things to himself about his bicycle and his alarm clock. 
he's like, okay. I said, is there anything that you need from me? He says, no, consider it done. And then every day for the rest of the semester, he comes on time. It's not that it's magically transformed his life and now he's an on-time person, but I let him save face in this situation where I could have criticized him. So we preserved the relationship and he wants and he wanted to please me instead of wanting to get out of there. So those are two situations, but literally anybody, everybody, you can use the magic question for anything. Someone coming to my class used it to get a policy passed at the New York Times that now covers egg freezing for all of their employees who want it. Another um, exec who came to my class at Turner Networks created a, an internship program that's paid interns paid internships for underrepresented minority students. And he just went around to the other executives on the team telling the story of Gloria Steinem and the magic question and saying, what would it take? And so he got money for 16 internships. You can do anything. We can do anything. Yes, you can. It's your superpower. It's a superpower. There's a nice consideration in that of what will it take? It sets up uh, working together. It sets up to get something done. It, it says that there's probably something else that's lower than both of us to handle so that we can have our good human interaction here. It's got some good features. That's great. Yeah. And, and what you're describing is exactly the perspective that I'm wanting to shift with this book in how we think about and how we talk about influence, where almost every book about influence that's been written and the courses that are taught are in this narrow domain of transactional influence and typically sales. So you're just trying to get something from somebody and they're a means or an obstacle to you getting what you want. And I want us to shift influence to really seeing and interacting with people as other human beings. And so we're in this together and we're finding ways to collaborate work together, do things together. And this is ultimately how people do work together. So like this has been the core way that people influence each other since the dawn of time. We just got off track a little, and now we have some new science to do it better than we could in the past. To return us to the track. That's pretty cool. Zoe, I would like to say one, there's 20 points of similarity and darn it, you know, kidding. But at the same time, there's some actionable points. And then I like the concept of it not being a transactional relationship with others or else that just turns into a back and forth in sales and whatnot. And what can I get in the next thing? There's some real perspective to have with that. At this moment, this is our uh, opportunity to have influence to a large amount of people if we desire it. And if not, that's okay too. I like that you have brought um, the bigger picture in most of these concepts because that's where I focus on and what I like to share with others. We will have to leave other related influence content for a future instance, potentially as a episode or even on a panel, who knows. But for the current moment, I would like to thank you for having been on this episode number 330 of the show and giving us a sense of how influence can be our superpower. Thank you so much for having me, Armin. And this has been an unexpectedly, absolutely fascinating conversation. So it's, and I say unexpected because I couldn't tell where the trajectory was going to go. And that made it a lot of fun. So thank you. Glad, to, very glad to on my end as well. It's always a shared thing, I would say. It can never just be 
one person had a certain great experience, the other person, what? That's a cool yeah. feature. Thank yeah. you for being on the show. And thank you for listening, everybody. And we are out.